1: A note to listeners before we get started. This episode includes discussions about suicide. Please take care while listening. Nicolette Montseca never thought she would get into Yale University. So when she got her acceptance letter in 2015, she burst into tears. She was so excited. Nicolette was living in rural Georgia. When she moved to New Haven, Connecticut she was told Yale would be her new family. She said her first semester was magical. But toward the end of Nicolette's freshman year, she started struggling with her mental health.
2: I started to have a lot of anxiety and obsessive thinking. That continued on into my sophomore year where it really became debilitating. I got stuck in obsessive thought spirals, what I would later realize was OCD. And I also went through a depressive state And this all came to a head when I was hospitalized at the end of my first semester of my junior year.
1: Nicolette was in a dark place. She harmed herself. She said she was still in the hospital when school officials approached her. They presented her with paperwork to voluntarily withdraw from the university.
2: I asked if there was another option, and they said no. So even though it was a voluntary withdrawal, they gave me no other option, even though I did not want to leave. I was told that I would have about two hours to move everything out of my dorm while a guarded police officer was standing there watching us. And then I left. I was not to step foot on Yale's campus unless I contacted the administration. My entire hospitalization experience at Yale, the experience I had with the Student Counseling Center, as well as my experiences afterward, they were all pretty traumatic.
1: Yale didn't respond to questions from the Post about individual students like Nicolette. But Washington Post reporter William Wan found more than two dozen current and former Yale students with similar stories.
0: When students were suicidal or even depressed and struggling with mental illness, they often basically got forced off campus. You know, someone talked to them from high up, like an administrator, and said, it's best that you take some time off But what was interesting is what happened after they withdrew. They had to reapply, in essence, to the university. They had to write application essays. They had to get letters of recommendation. Some even had to take courses. There was this requirement that you pass two courses at a four-year university and submit your grades for it to show you still have academic rigor.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahei Izadi. It's Tuesday, February 21st. Today, William explains why students were asked to leave Yale, how difficult it was for them to get back in, and what colleges all over the country are doing about students struggling with mental health. William, I'm wondering if you can just sort of walk us through the process that students like Nicolette go through, Uh, a student that um, needs help. How does the university even find out, and then what happens from
0: there? So I talked to one student, several actually, who had the same experience. Usually they're rushed to the main ER that's associated with Yale. And so there, a lot of them, they were told by the ER staff that Yale has to be informed because you're a student. And they say they felt pressure to sign these consent forms that allow the hospital to tell Yale. Um, The hospital wouldn't comment for our story, but once Yale's informed, students said sometimes within hours there was an official calling or visiting and kind of just telling them that you should really withdraw for your own benefit. They can involuntarily force you to leave, but usually what they do, according to all these students, is that they kind of force you to take a voluntary withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what puts you in the process. And they had all of these, it's very complicated policies, but essentially you would be away from Yale, not allowed to set foot without the permission of a dean or even reapply for like at least two semesters often was the case. And so that's almost a year for a lot of these students um, where they have to find ways of quote, like being constructively occupied and prove that. In 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 their essays, like I was volunteering for this, or I was wor- doing this amazing job, kind of like proving themselves all over again in an application essay.
1: I mean, listening to that, what, wouldn't that put students in an even more precarious situation? If being on campus and they're dealing with all of all of these struggles, and now they're under even more pressure to meet all of these requirements to to come back. Was that something that came across in the interviews that you did? Like, what impact did this policy have on people?
0: Yeah, a lot of students said, you know, this year, they said it was for me to recover, but it was just about me proving myself to Yale again. So a lot of them, they they talked about, like, the pressure they feel under to get back in, how every decision they were making during that year off was dominated by, like, how will this look to Yale? Instead of, like, what do I need to get better, you know, mentally? Some of them talked about being in counseling and kind of this clinician that I'm meeting with is going to be writing my letter to Yale. What do I tell them that will get me back in, which is not an ideal situation for therapy.
1: Yeah. What about students who weren't necessarily in crisis, but they were at Yale and they're just looking for guidance or other mental health resources on campus? What what existed for them?
0: that was one of the most surprising things about the reporting is that i started talking to students who were who kind of talked about being ghosted by their therapists and counseling centers like they would reach out some of them even saying that it was this weird thing where you don't want to say that you're suicidal because you know you might get withdrawn but if you reach out for help some of them were saying it took like four months five months six months for the counseling center to even find appointments for them or respond to them i spoke with madison hahami who was actually a student reporter for the yale daily news and talked to One of the people who killed themselves, a student named Rachel Shaw Rosenbaum.
3: To kind of have had those moments, to have known her in that specific way and to now feel like when people looked up her name, they were going to see my name and see that she had told me these things and then she still died was really hard um, and I think kind of just exacerbated um, a lot of the previous kind of issues with anxiety and with depression that I had had unrelated before then.
0: You know, She had interviewed her during her freshman year about her struggling with depression during COVID and being so isolated. And her death just really, really rocked Madison's world. Like she found herself struggling a few months later herself, having thoughts of suicide herself as well. She sought help um, and, you know, asked for counseling, asked for therapists. And the counselor she asked her, "Have you ever had suicidal thoughts?" And this was the first person in the world Madison had ever admitted this to. But even then she said it took two months and repeated requests for therapy before she even got like the first session. And so she had talked about how it actually just made her feel worse.
3: I felt bad because I had felt like I was fighting so hard and you know, sending all these like kind of passive aggressive emails to get someone, and then I got someone. And it's like a 30-minute session every two weeks. That's what they offered me. And like, I think my mental health at that point was actually a little bit worse because I'd felt like it was a little bit more justified, you know, in the months after. But now it was like a year later and I was really just kind of suffering. And I, I felt like people were a little less sympathetic to that because it was so long after the
0: fact. She would start in therapy, kind of talking about a problem, and time's up. And so a lot of students actually mentioned this being a problem, like the inadequacy of counseling. They would wait for months to get any kind of appointment with a therapist and kind of calling, emailing, texting, and trying to get help over and over again and waiting like four months.
1: Yeah, and we should note, Yale said in the past year, it's expanded its resources to address mental health needs for students Yale has hired six more counselors for a total of more than 50, which shortened wait times. It added options for group therapy and short-term counseling. And one official said most students are now able to get appointments within two weeks. But William, I'm wondering, how do students at Yale feel about the school's approach to mental health?
0: Every time in the past decade, there's been a high-profile suicide at Yale— there have been protests and pushes and kind of advocacy from student groups. But the weird thing is students only stay there a certain amount of time. And so there's these ebbs and flows when the administration just weathers the protests, make a few minor changes, and move on. For example, like a few years ago, they got rid of this $50 application fee and they changed the name of the process from readmission to reinstatement. And so there's been a a large amount of frustration from the students who have advocated in the past and then they graduate, but even then they're pushing for change. The current students, what happened two years ago is there was one of these very tragic suicides that was quite traumatic to the campus. Um, A student in the middle of COVID had killed herself in her dorm. Mm. And so it was just a shock on campus and these same issues surfaced again. And there was a whole student, new student groups that formed. There was like two or three kind of pushing for change. And again, it looked like the same thing was going to happen. Just some like conversations with administration officials, a few minor changes, and then continuing on as as status quo.
1: What does Yale have to say about why it, it has these policies in place?
0: Our initial story they would only talk about their mental health counseling services and not about the withdrawal policies. After our story ran, you know, Yale started getting all of these calls and emails, um, from alumni, from donors, from faculty. And the president of Yale actually responded in, in a letter to alumni, you know, they made a pretty concerted, um, defense of their mental health commitment of their handling of students in these situations. And he said that our story was mischaracterizing all of those efforts. But he also promised in the letter that they would increase their staffing to mental health, that they would open a whole new counseling site and that they'd review the policies that we brought up in our reporting.
1: Is this unique to Yale? Do other universities have a similar approach to students in crisis? And In your reporting, when you like interviewed experts, what kind of insight do they offer as to why universities and colleges may have policies like this?
0: This is not unique to Yale. You know, especially with several Ivy League colleges in recent years, there have been class action lawsuits. There's been investigations from the Department of Justice. And a lot of colleges are now trying to change their approach to mental health so that it's more inclusive of students like that. All colleges are overwhelmed right now. There's this huge soaring um, rates of depression, anxiety, suicidal thought on all college campuses. But what's surprising is Yale, as opposed to, you know, a lot of colleges, they will openly admit like they don't have the funding to hire the staff needed for these problems. One student described to me walking into this new student union that was built for just millions and millions of dollars. Essentially, you know, one donor said, I want to build a building with you guys, and here's a boatload of money. So students say, in Yale's case, it's not an issue of resources. It's really an issue of attention and commitment to helping mental health.
1: After the break, William and I talk about what changed at Yale after his reporting. We'll be right back.
0: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses.
1: Can you explain why a university like Yale would ask students to voluntarily withdraw? What is a university's thinking here?
0: That what happens for it, this is not just for Yale, this is for all universities. When a student is suicidal on campus, I feel like the the legal aspect plays a huge role. Because on one hand, they're facing possible lawsuit from family, relatives, if someone kills themselves on campus. Who's liable? Often the university is being thrust into that. So that's what they're kind of protecting against. But on the other side, there's a growing movement within the legal system against discrimination for for mental illness. So seeing it as a disability like any other disability. And so there's a mounting number of lawsuits. And in fact, after our story came out, there was a group of students who banded together and filed a proposed class action lawsuit. And that really got Yale's attention. So a group called Eli's for Rachel had formed after the, the suicide of Rachel Shaw Rosenbaum two years ago. And so that group, which is made up mostly of alumni, but also some current students, they collected all of these stories from students. They um, got three different public interest law firms to help them file this lawsuit. And so that one is what's pushing a lot of the change I feel now after the story. But just recently, this surprising email came out from the Dean of Yale to the students at the university. They basically announced changes to almost every single issue we raised in our story. You know, they didn't say this is because of the story. What they said is, we want students who are in crisis for their first priority to be mental health and not all of these other issues that were bubbling up. It used to be students being forced to withdraw. And what this college said is, from now on, students can take these leaves of absences uh, instead of being withdrawn. And they can return to classes when they feel ready not when there's like a uh, dictated time from policy they also said students can keep their health insurance which was a big problem for a lot of students who are suddenly kicked out because of their mental health issues and then can't even get help while they're gone especially low-income families students from kind of diverse backgrounds like from rural areas of the country like they have very little ways of getting some of this mental health help that they need to get back into university so that student health insurance is a huge one and then lastly they they aren't forced to reapply to get back in there's like a more simplified process basically they need a clinician's letter they write um, kind of a personal statement explaining why they left the treatment they got and why they feel ready to return and that's basically it.
1: And we should note that settlement talks and the lawsuit at Yale that you just mentioned are still ongoing. But I did want to ask, William, what do student activists think about these changes and do they think it's enough? And I'm also wondering about the students like Nicolette, who you had interviewed. What do they think about these policy changes?
0: The students I talked to are just so happy and relieved, I think, is, is the main emotion. Um, I think a lot of them didn't think anything would ever change because there had been high profile suicides before and protests and sit-ins and meetings with administrators for almost the past decade. And so a lot of them kind of were despairing that anything would, would ever change. And so I, I talked to a few students. One of them told me, you know, I my first thought was like about everything I went through and everything friends of mine went through and how this would have changed so much for us, not having this pressure of no one can find out what I'm thinking, no one can find out the trouble that I'm facing. And so she had said, I really hope this helps others. But at the same time, there's a lot of students who feel like, you know, this this is a good first step, but unless like the culture and the attitude changes at the university, this is just policy change. You know, the, the culture of... You have to be perfect or else you're not welcome here. That's what a lot of them highlighted. This is what needs to change.
2: I mean, students, they brag to each other about how miserable they are. And they compare how much sleep they've gotten or how little sleep they've gotten. And these kind of conversations just create such a toxic atmosphere on the campus. And when I was there, I felt like I couldn't talk about my problems or my suffering because everyone was suffering.
1: William, I I do want to step back and ask more generally across the country about students, college students, university students in crisis. Throughout the United States, has this number been rising? And do we know what's behind any changes in the number? I know the pandemic was really hard for a lot of people. And I'm wondering whether that has had an impact on the state of mental health on college campuses and in students in crisis.
0: Yeah, it's actually a bit frightening, the the numbers when I started digging into them. You know, from 2013 to 2021, so basically the last decade, the, the rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal thought in college students, it's more than doubled, which is crazy to think that, like, just in that time, it's risen so much, but almost every college in America they're struggling to get enough staffing for their counseling centers. They're trying to figure out ways to, to like fund mental health, to like build it into, you know, freshman orientation and such, but there's just not enough being done now. And I think it's not necessarily the college's fault that they can't keep up. Like this is a national problem is, is similar to Yale. It's not just policy, it's attitude. Like, how much do we care about the people who are suffering when it comes to mental health versus physical health? If you look at government funding, like grant funding, if you look at hospital staffing, most importantly, if you look at how insurance reimburses um, rates, it's so different between a heart attack and a suicidal person when both, in fact, place you in such danger of death. So college students are basically kind of like the downstream of this is what happens, this is what you get if you don't invest in mental health from the time people are, you know, children until college student age.
1: Well, William, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: William Wan is an enterprise reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins and Maggie Penman. Thanks to Madison Hahami and Nicolette Montica. Before we go, I wanted to remind you of all the ways you can listen to our episodes. You can subscribe to Post Reports wherever you listen to podcasts. And now Amazon Prime members can get ad-free versions of our show on Amazon Music. So you can find us without the ads there. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.